that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be fr frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than, do, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to, get, to death in the body that made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. I wonder what comes to mind for you when I say the words evangelism or sharing your faith. For me, there are a range of emotions that come to mind. On a good day, it might well be excitement, but more often than not, it's probably a feeling of fear. I fear looking stupid or well, more stupid than normal. Um, I, I feel overwhelmed by the task at hand and not really sure the best way to start. But I think another big one for me is I feel guilty. I feel guilty because it's something that I don't do enough of. This morning, we're going to be finishing our series on hope by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, where we will consider sharing the hope that we have. Verse 15 of our chapter that was read wonderfully just a moment ago is a particularly famous one. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is one of the go-to passages in the Bible when we talk about evangelism and sharing our faith. But sadly, because of that, it is often turned into a stick to beat people with rather than used as something to encourage them. The Bible is very clear. Christians are supposed to share their faith with other people. But it's also very clear that the motivation for that should not be guilt or fear, but it should be hope. As we look at this passage today, I hope to show you three things that Peter tells us about sharing hope. Firstly, he teaches that first and foremost, we must have our own hope in Jesus. Secondly, he teaches us that we should let that hope change the way that we live. And thirdly, that we're then to share that hope with other people. So let's look through those things in the passage this morning. Um, as the name of the book suggests, this book was written by Peter, the disciple of Jesus. He is a character in the Bible who I can, um, who I feel a strong association with. He's someone who constantly put his foot in his mouth. He is someone who constantly got things wrong and was pretty hot headed. And he serves me as a great reminder that God is able to show his strength in our weakness. So I'm very grateful that Jesus chose him and used him so powerfully in um, forming and building the early church. Um, 
Peter is writing about 30 years after the death of Jesus and he addresses his his letter in chapter one, verse one. He says to the elect exiles, elect means chosen. So Peter is writing to those who have been chosen by God, not chosen based on who they are or their nationality or their bloodline. But in chapter one, verse 19, Peter makes it clear they were chosen based upon the precious blood of Christ. Exiles, on the other hand, means those who are living in a land which is not their own. Peter's not here talking about physical exiles, but spiritual exiles. You see, being chosen by God changes this so fundamentally that it changes who we are. Our new nationality becomes we are people of the kingdom of God. But for now, we are called to live amongst those who have chosen to reject that kingdom. Peter knows that this is no small task. So he writes this letter to the church to encourage them to put their hope in Jesus. He says in chapter one, verse three, he points into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what this letter is all about. It's all about finding hope in Jesus and standing firm in that hope, even in the face of opposition. So let's see some of the ways that Peter points to hope that we can have in Jesus. Firstly, he points us to a hope that we can be brought to God. If you look at verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, last time I preached, we looked at Genesis chapter three, and there we saw that the root of all our problems is that we have been separated from sin, uh, from God. And the reason for that separation is our sin. God is the source of life and all that is good. So when we are separated from him, we are separated from life and goodness. If we die separated from God, then we have much to fear. But if we have been brought to him, then we have hope, a hope that he will right all wrongs, a hope that he will give us life. No matter how bad life gets now, being brought to God gives us a hope that he will make all wrong things right, that he will bring us life, joy and peace. And not only in the life to come. In his grace, God has enabled everybody to be able to enjoy the good things of this world. But we need to know that we have been made to enjoy a perfect relationship with our creator. When we are separated from him, we are cut off from the very best that life has to offer. We're like a person who goes to the Grand Canyon and takes with a postcard that has a view. They're looking down at the postcard rather than looking up at the wonderful view in front of them. Or like a person who takes a power drill and tries to hammer a nail into a piece of wood with it. They're missing out on the very best life has to offer. They're missing out on what they were created for. Secondly, Peter shows us that we have a hope in the one who died for us. I think I'm increasingly becoming a grumpy old man. I can't even watch the news anymore, watch to my, much to my wife's dismay, without shouting at the TV about the horrible bias in the way that everything is reported. I realised that it was getting worse recently when I was watching TV with my eight-year-old. An advert came on for a bank and it was one of those lovely adverts with nice music and real life stories and um, lots of nice things happening in it. And the tagline at the end was the bank saying, we're here for you. My eight-year-old shouts at the TV, no, you're not. You just want our money. <laughs> The world is full of people telling us that we can hope in them 
But so many of these promises are completely empty. Peter reminds us that God is not another one of these empty promises, not that he he will fulfill what he has promised. He will bring it about, even if it means that he has to die. Look again at verse 18. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is the scandal of the gospel. A righteous God died for an unrighteous people. The promise to be brought to God is not based on us being good enough. It's based on a good God coming to earth and living a perfect life and then dying in our place for our sins. The modern use of the word hope carries with it a certain level of uncertainty. I remember when our girls were a lot younger, I'd go to bed almost every night. And as I closed my eyes, I'd think, I hope that they sleep through tonight. Now, I wanted it to be true, but I knew that it was very unlikely that it would be. Thankfully, the Bible's use of the word hope is not the same. In the Bible, you see, hope is not based on something that might happen in the future. Instead, it is based on something which has already happened in the past, on Jesus dying for his people. That's where our hope is based, and that's why our hope is sure. Thirdly, we have a hope in the one who reigns. One of my constant doubts as a Christian is if all this is true, if this is really right, then why are so few of us this morning gathered round a computer screen? Why aren't more people interested? Well, Peter wants us to know it's because the kingdom of God starts small, but it doesn't just grow into something big. It grows into a kingdom that will never end. Look at the very end of verse 21 and then going into verse 22. It says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Peter wants you to now know that now the kingdom might seem small. It might seem weak. And in the face of so much opposition, it might seem distant. But Jesus, the triumphant king, is reigning at the right hand of God the Father. We have a sure hope that he will return, but this time not in weakness and humility, this time in power and authority. It's incredible to think that the one who sits at the right hand of God loves us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. That is the person who is on his throne in heaven. So firstly, Peter wants us to see all these reasons to set our hope on Jesus, that he will put all things right, that he will fix all that is wrong. And he'll do it based not on what we do, but on what he has already done for us. But then he calls us to respond by living as those who have hope. Look at verse eight and nine. Finally, all of you be like minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because because to this you were called. Peter is calling us to a radical life of love, a love that goes far beyond expectations. In the world we live in, some of those qualities are admired. It's admired when people are humble and sympathetic and generous but to bless those who are evil to us, that takes it to, surely that takes it too far. 
Peter is calling us to a standard that is so high that if we're doing it for any reason other than our hope in Jesus, it will break us. He's calling us to live a life of someone who hopes not in what we have now, but what we know we will have because of what Jesus has done for us. Finding our hope in Jesus changes the way that we live. It changes these things that Peter wants us to do from an unachievable burden to a hope filled joy. It's a call to be it's a call for us to be more like the one in which we hope. Let's look at three of the attributes that Peter lists and see how hope helps to motivate us to live like that. So firstly, humility. I have to say I'm really good at humility. I'm probably the most humble person that I know. <laughs> the, the world is full of false humility, isn't it? There's this great phrase, the humble brag. It's when someone says something which appears self-deprecating, but actually they're saying it to draw attention to something that they're proud of. It's actually the very opposite. So an example would be, I might say, oh, I'm rubbish at public speaking. That backfired slightly. Someone was supposed to unmute themselves and say, no, you're not, Dave, you're really good. <laughs> but you get the idea. It's, it's a phrase which sounds humble, but actually it's the complete opposite. <clears throat> It looks like humility, but it's not. We love to point to the good things that we're proud of. But as we've seen already, our faith is based upon what has been done for us, not what we do for ourselves. True humility comes from a realisation that the good things we have are a gift, a gift from God. They've come free to us and at great cost to the one who gave them. I can't brag about that which has been given to me as a free gift. Secondly, Peter calls us to repay evil with blessing. Now, loving people that we're fond of can be hard at times. I'm sure many of you have been reminded of that over the Christmas period. But loving someone who is evil to us is on a whole different level. But what if our hope for all that is good in this world was based upon someone loving us when we were being evil to, evil to them? Because it is. Yet again, in verse 18, we see Jesus, who is righteous, dying for those who are unrighteous. It is the perfect example of someone choosing to bless those who are being evil to them. If you're struggling to do this yourself, the answer is not to try harder or to dig deeper. It's instead to look to Jesus and see that that is what he did for us, that he chose to bless us when we were still being evil. And he did it at unimaginable cost. God's not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. He's calling us to trust in his perfect justice, to trust that we don't need to try and vindicate ourselves, because when Jesus returns in authority, he will vindicate his people. Thirdly, Peter calls us to endure hardship. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. We've already seen that a big theme of Peter's letter is to encourage Christians to endure hardship and not give up. Here he's talking specifically about hardship that we face because of being a Christian. He's talking about persecution 
but it is just as fitting for other kinds of hardship that we face as well. I wonder what it is in your life that makes you feel like giving up sometimes. Maybe it is persecution or maybe it's constant ill health. Maybe it's just feeling tired from life being so unrelenting. Maybe it's a family situation or a relationship that's turned poisonous. All of these things which can make us feel like giving up. Peter's not telling us to pretend these things don't exist. Instead, he's telling us, even in these situations, to hope in Jesus as the one who will bring salvation and hope in difficult circumstances. To recognise that Jesus alone can bring us true rest. It's about having a perspective that says life is not as it should be now, but it will be because I have a hope in Jesus who will bring about what he has promised. And I know it because he endured for me. He endured the cross so that I could be with him. Peter finishes this passage with a rather confusing couple of verses. In verses 19 and 20, it says this. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were being saved through water. Now, the famous theologian Martin Luther said of this, these verses, I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant here. There are a lot of different suggestions as to what these verses mean. I think the one which makes the most sense is that in the spirit, Jesus spoke through Noah in the days of the flood to those people who were unrepentant. Those people didn't listen to Noah. They didn't listen to Jesus speaking through Noah and they died in a state of not repenting. So they are now imprisoned in hell, imprisoned spirits. So the timeline is a bit confusing, but I think that is the one which makes the most sense. Much of the debate around these verses centres on the who, where, what and why of these imprisoned spirits. But it's really important we don't lose sight of why Peter has used this story in, in this passage. He's pointing us to the example of Noah as someone who stood firm in his faith, even in the face of great opposition. Imagine how difficult it must have been to build a massive boat on dry land. Imagine the ridicule he must have faced on a daily basis. He must have been told often, you're off your rocker, mate. How do you keep going in the face of that? Well, firstly, he trusted God and he believed that judgment was coming. And then secondly, he hoped in God as his only means of salvation, as the ark of the only way of surviving judgment. Peter puts this story in here to remind us that like the ark, Jesus is the only way of surviving judgment. Jesus is our only hope of salvation. Peter wants us to hope in him and set our hearts on him. There is another reason that God wants you to live as those who put their hope in Jesus. It's because it points other people to God as well. Being able to explain the gospel and answer people's questions about the Christian faith is really important. But those things pale in insignificance to a Christian who puts their hope in Jesus, even in the face of hardship. 
If you think of last Sunday, our carol service, we heard numerous reasons why we should hope in God. I was leading the service and I'm sorry to say I can't remember a lot of them. But I tell you what I will remember is the testimonies of John and Celia who shared their hope in Jesus, even in the face of bereavement and frustration and hardship. Those testimonies spoke powerfully of a faithful God. That's why I've emphasised this order. Firstly, we must hope in Jesus ourselves. Secondly, we must let that hope change the way that we live. And then thirdly, we share that hope. Now, there is a risk in emphasising this order. I don't want you to go away this morning thinking I've really got to make sure that I really, really hope in God. And then I've really, really got to sort my life out. And then and only then will I be ready to share my hope with other people. If that were true, none of us would be doing it. This is something that can happen on the very first day that we put our hope in Jesus. You've only got to turn to the Gospels to see that happen again and again. I read this story in John chapter four recently of Jesus meeting a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and she realises that Jesus is her only hope. But what does she do after that? She doesn't say, well, I need to really sort my life out now and make sure that I'm living as a good Christian and I need to really make sure that I've got the right amount of hope in Jesus and then I'll go and tell people. No, she goes off immediately into town and she tells people about Jesus. She puts her hope in him. She recognises that that hope needs to change the way that she lives and she shares that hope all in the same day. The other danger to avoid in talking about this order is that we think if I just hope in Jesus and if I try to live as best as I can, then I don't need to share hope because people will see it through the things that I do. Well, Peter is also clear there are things that we need to do as well. Let's look at some of those now. Firstly, Peter tells us that sharing hope is a team game. If you look at verse eight, it says this, all of you be like minded and love one another. Now, we can often think if only I could get my non-Christian friend to hear the right sermon or read the right book, then they would see why I hope in Jesus. And these things are important. But the most effective and biblical model of sharing our faith is when people are introduced to a Christian community which love and care for one another. That is the greatest apologetic. When people look at our church, they may well say these people are delusional, but they should also say there's something different about these people. The way they care for each other is really wonderful. I'd love to be part of a community like that. Now, there are things that we can do to make that happen. Firstly, and rather obviously, we actually have to love one another. We have to spend time with each other and build relationships and spend time sacrificing for one another, pointing each other to Jesus. And then secondly, we have to try and find ways of inviting people into that community. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to invite people to church, but it might just mean introducing your non-Christian friends to your Christian friends, spending time together, going for a walk together, going to the park together, doing online gaming together, whatever it might be, obviously while socially distancing and wearing masks and abiding to whatever tier you're in. But we can do those things, can't we, to share the hope that we have. The second thing that Peter shows us is that we need to be prepared. 
Back in verse 15 again, he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. The thing here is that we're not sitting around twiddling our thumbs, waiting for someone to ask us where our hope is. It means that we're considering what our answer will be. We're thinking about what we should say. Now, we're probably not going to get someone who asked the question quite like Peter words it. But is it unlikely to think someone might say to you, why are you a Christian? Why do you go to church? Why aren't you worried about COVID? Why do you give to charity? Have you thought about how you would answer those questions? How you would point away from yourself and to your hope in Jesus to share that hope? The third thing that Peter tells us is that we actually have to answer. Being prepared is great, but we do actually have to answer people's questions. Now, this point seems so obvious. I nearly didn't put it in, but I guess I'm preaching to myself here. You see, I'm often quite well prepared for these questions when they come. But then when the time, when the crunch comes, fear takes over and I don't say anything. If we want to share our hope, then we do actually have to point to our hope. We have to give an answer for the hope that we have. We don't have a blind faith. We have a faith which is based on reason and logic and beauty. And we need to share all those things. We need to employ logic and reason in the way which we explain why we hope in Jesus. Now, if like me, that makes you feel really nervous, then why not pray to the one that you hope in? that he would help you to be brave in those moments and that you would he would help us to show clearly why we hope in Jesus in a world which seems hopeless. Fourthly, Peter tells us we're to do all those things with gentleness and respect. It doesn't matter how good you think you are at answering people's questions and defending the faith. People probably won't remember what it is that you said, but what they will remember is the way in which you said it. We're never to fall into the trap of thinking that we're trying to win an argument. The motivation for sharing our hope is not that we are trying to show people that we're right and they're wrong. Instead, we're trying to show people that we have a hope too good to keep to ourselves. We're trying to show people that we are one beggar showing another beggar where they found bread. Now, when I was a kid, I remember that my brother and I used to share a room and we were often a bit of a pain at night time. Mum and dad would come up and I should notice that they are actually here this morning, so they might well correct me on this story. <laughs> they used to come up and turn the lights out and then we'd give it a few minutes, turn it back on and start messing around. Now, we knew that when we heard dad's knees creaking as he came up the stairs, we had about three seconds to turn the light out and to get ourselves back into bed. I thought we were like ninjas, but dad always knew that we'd been out of bed and I could never understand why. He once said to me, though, it's the stars that give you away. I looked a bit puzzled and then he pointed to the ceiling. We had those glow in the dark stick on stars that went on the ceiling. The thing is about those stars is that they don't give off their own light. They absorb light from the light in the room and then they emit that when the room is dark. So when you first turn the light off, the, room, the stars shine a lot brighter, thus giving us away. In this passage, Peter is calling us to be like glow-in-the-dark stars. We're to be like sh lights shining in a dark place as we share the hope of Christ. 
but we don't have our own light source. The only light we can display is that which we have absorbed from Jesus Christ. If we want to shine brightly in the darkness, we must bathe in his light, allowing the beauty of Jesus to change us and the gospel of truth to speak into our hearts. We must enjoy the beauty and truth that we find as we look at Jesus and as we find our hope in him. The more we enjoy and meditate on the truth of the gospel, the more brightly we will shine in a dark place. So this morning, let's set our hope upon Jesus. Let's recognise that he is supremely valuable and supremely beautiful. Let's allow that hope to change the way that we live. And let's share that hope with those who have none.